Gospels. You can open them uh, to Genesis chapter 37. It's a privilege to bring you the Word of God this morning. It's been a little while since I've uh, had opportunity to do so, and so I was delighted when providentially God took Mike away on a golf trip. (laughs) We pray that he was refreshed, and we thank him uh, for all of his service. And I hope that uh, we'll be encouraged this morning. I've had opportunity to be in the book of Genesis for the last year of my life. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on uh, Genesis chapter 49, and it really was a year with the book of Genesis. And I was telling our students this morning that... I think the main takeaway from this dissertation process was even after a year of concentrated attention full-time to one book of the Bible, I barely scratched the surface. (laughs) You could devote your entire life uh, to one book, let alone the entire Bible, and not exhaust uh, its life and its resources, which is truly a remarkable testimony uh, to the gift that God has given us in his word. So a brief frame of introduction for Genesis 37 to dive right into the last portion of the book of Genesis. The second half of the book of Genesis is chronicling God's faithfulness to his promise which he made to one family, Abraham. He called Abraham out of the nations and he made him a promise. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth and I'm going to give you a name. God would be the actor in this, Abraham, the recipient. And the following chapters would detail how God is relentlessly faithful to this promise in the face of some remarkable failures on behalf of his servants and also some remarkable faithfulness as well. But we come in Genesis 37 to the family of providence, to the family of promise. No longer is Isaac selected and Ishmael passed over, Jacob selected and Esau passed over, but all of Jacob's children, the 12 of them, stand to inherit in some sense the promise that God had given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there's an anticipation that the rivalry which characterized the brothers in the preceding chapters would all of a sudden be gone because everybody stands to benefit. The rivalry which drove a wedge between Jacob and Esau and tore apart in many ways their relationship, but for God's grace at the very end. It was gone because everybody was going to participate in the promise. And yet we open on a rather surprising scene. And so that's where we start. Genesis 37. Lend your attention to God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. 
Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will see And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, so that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and they lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Join me in prayer. 
Father, your word is a wonder. We're grateful that you have given it to us. We're grateful that it bears testimony to your great faithfulness. We're thankful that it sets forth your Son. Be pleased to guard my heart, guard my words. Set forth Christ, Lord, that your people might see him and live and give you the glory that you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love all of my children equally. Well, I've only met one of them so far, so. But I still think that's the ideal. I've never met a parent who comes right out and introduces me to their family and says, this is my family. They all have the blessing of being my children, but this one right here, this is Sally. She's my favorite. (laughs) Children, who's daddy's favorite? Sally is daddy's favorite. Could you imagine parents coming home to your children distributing gifts to all of your children equally, but then turning to the youngest and giving them gift after gift after gift after gift. How would the one who receives the gift respond? How would the others respond to the one who received the gift? You don't have to read far in the book of Genesis to notice that favoritism is a rather significant theme. Fascinatingly, the narratives which account the favoritism seem more interested in watching how the various figures react and respond to the disparity of gifts and circumstances than it does in denouncing the fact that there is disparity in gifts and circumstances. I think that's fascinating. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think... Part of the reason is that in a strange and mysterious way, God has favorites. That sat at the heart of Israel's existence, didn't it? Why did God choose Abraham out of everyone in all the earth? Israel's existence was shaped by the fact that they were the object of Yahweh's unparalleled affection. They were his favorite in a manner of speaking. Now, I don't think this justifies or encourages favoritism in our family. There's been some confusion on that front. And so I want to come right out and say it. I do not approve of favoritism in families. But I think we'd be amiss if we overlooked the opportunity to ask some hard questions that Scripture suggests. Namely, how do we respond in the face of disparities when we're on either side of them? Just beneath the observation that Joseph is Jacob's favorite is the suspicion that Joseph is also God's favorite. In one sense, we can certainly say that God is good to all. He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. In another sense, we can say that all of the elect have received God's love Equally as they have been placed in the sun, the sun has laid down his life for them. The spirit has safeguarded them and has assured that not one for whom the sun has died will be lost. We all equally share in that. But what about beyond that? What about in the household of faith? In in the church, is there a disparity of gifts? You look through the pages of scripture and you see that yes, there is. Moses enjoyed an unparalleled position of favor with God. He spoke with God face to face. And this was cause for no little difficulty in Israel. Read the book of Numbers. Multiple parties rose up to challenge him. 
David was the recipient of some remarkable favor, also a cause of no little difficulty in Israel's history. Paul and the apostles occupied a rather unique position of favor that none of us enjoy. He gave to the church first apostles. Paul writes to the church at Corinth as they wrestle through a similar observation. There seems to be a disparity of gifts and circumstances that characterize even the household of God. Paul, what do we make of this? Paul says, yeah, the Spirit gives a different gifts according to his will. In our text this morning, Joseph is the recipient of God's unique favor. And so, like the brothers, we're confronted with the uncomfortable question, How do we reconcile in our own hearts the mysterious distribution of God's gifts and favorable positions and circumstances which, at least at a glance, appear so uneven? So let's ask two questions of the text. First, how do we receive God's favor when it's given to us? And second, how do we view others when they receive favor which we haven't? First, how do we receive God's favor? I suggest that we're prone to exploit it for our own gain. We're prone to abuse it. Joseph is clearly favored. Twice, in verse 3 and 4, we hear, Israel loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. And Jacob's love for Joseph resulted in a particular gift, the famous multicolored coat. It's likely that this gift signals what Jacob's favor actually meant. It's a unique coat. It only shows up one other time in all of Scripture. In 2 Samuel 13, Tamar, daughter of David, princess of Israel, is the only other figure in Scripture to wear this coat. The coat seems to suggest preeminence, a position of authority which seems to be what is at the heart of Jacob's favoring of Joseph, that he would occupy a unique leadership position among the brothers. Joseph's dreams seem to suggest the same thing and indeed confirm that God has set Joseph apart for this purpose. Both dreams present Joseph as occupying this position of preeminence. Everything about dreams in Genesis up until this point suggests that God uses them to reveal his will to man. Dreams will feature prominently in Joseph's story, at the end of which he'll declare that all dreams are from God. In addition to this favorable position, we learn in the course of Joseph's narrative that Joseph is also richly blessed. He's a very handsome man, blessed with physical graces. He seems to possess a certain charisma that enables him to thrive as leader wherever he goes. He has wisdom, the ability to interpret dreams, all of which leads to his remarkable success in every new scenario in which Yahweh has placed him. But ultimately, the text attributes his success to one thing. Genesis 39.3, Yahweh was with Joseph, uniquely blessing him. Joseph was clearly the recipient of gracious favor that not all enjoyed in the family, both from Jacob and from God. But how does Joseph act as the recipient of this favor? Unfortunately, as is oftentimes the case, Joseph fundamentally misunderstands the purpose of his favor, leading him 
to abuse it. Now I want to take a moment and note that I'm going to suggest that Joseph was sinful. And I've suggested this in the past, and it's bothered people, which surprises me. That my suggestion that a human being is sinful bothers people is surprising. Have you ever met a human being? They are quite sinful. (laughs) In fact, nothing in the book of Genesis would lead us to expect a non-sinful servant of God. The testimony of Genesis is that God's faithfulness endures in the face of some remarkable sin on behalf of his servants. And I would say that the same is true for Joseph. Note at the very beginning what we learn about Joseph. Joseph brings a bad report about his brothers. Now, if you're into word studies, I commend this word to you for a word study. It does not show up that frequently, but it is the first glimpse that we have into Joseph's suspect character. The two instances it occurs in Scripture which are illuminating. First, the spies who are sent initially to scope out the land of promise in the book of Numbers bring back a bad report about the promised land. This is a good land that they say devours its inhabitants. This is a land Yahweh has promised to give them, which they say is impossible to take. It raises a little bit of question about the character of these spies, and indeed this resulted from their disqualification in the promised land. If you're not convinced by that, look in Proverbs chapter 10 where it's just translated slander. (laughs) The word is translated slander. Even if the word itself is ambiguous, which I don't think it is, I think there's, there's more than a little suggestion that Joseph here is bringing a morally suspect report here. Notice the link between verse 2 and verse 3. Joseph brought a bad report concerning the brothers to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. What does that link suggest? What does it at least recommend for our consideration? There's a strong suggestion that Joseph acted to exploit his position of favor to his advantage and the brother's disadvantage. It's a perverse model of leadership, isn't it? To the degree that he benefits is the degree to which another loses. It is a rivalrous economy. It is a zero-sum game. And it is antithetical to the principle active in the household of God. His second dream also suggests an unwieldy hubris. Notice the scope of his rule. It is cosmic the sun, the moon, the 11 stars, they bow down not to another heavenly body, but to Joseph. He pays deference to none, not the father or the mother, which is the source of some consternation for his father. And most interestingly, not to God. This is interesting because in Joseph's career, the one thing that he will learn is that no matter how high he rises, he will always be second He will always pay deference to another. This is true in Potiphar's house when he was under Potiphar. This is true in the prison when he was under the prison ward. And it's even true as he finds himself vice-regent of Egypt. He's still 
under Pharaoh. This is the perennial temptation for any leader. They forget that no matter how high they rise, they always stand before one to whom they will give an account. Joseph fundamentally misunderstands the favor which had been given to him. He sees it as something to be exploited for his gain, to be paraded to his glory. Parents, imagine you come home and you give gifts to all your children. You turn to your youngest. You give gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. And then the youngest launches into a song about how much more superior she is to the other children and begins recounting to you how disobedient the other children had been throughout the course of the day. We feel the grotesqueness of that. We feel that that is unseemly. Why? Because there's nothing of humility in it. There's nothing of gratitude in it. What was the reason for Joseph's favor in the eyes of the father, according to the narrative? It's a quirk of circumstance. He was the son of his father's old age. Not exactly grounds to boast there, Joseph. From the life filling our veins, to the new life granted to us in Christ, to the gifts that he's given for his own mysterious purposes, what do we have that we haven't received. And if we've received it, why do we boast? Doesn't grace properly forbid all pride? So it's worth asking, what coats do we love to wear for others? What gifts, positions, are we tempted to exploit for our own gain, to parade about for our own glory? We're prone to forget, aren't we? That God gives all of his gifts, not for our glory, but for his and for the blessing of others. Let not the servant boast in his service. Let not the singer boast in her singing. The thinker in his thinking. The leader in their leading. The preacher in his preaching. Far be it from us to boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. Joseph's boast was in the gift rather than the giver. And this led him to abuse the favor given to him. Yet does his failure justify the brother's response? Let's ask the second question. How do we view others when they receive favor which we haven't? I suggest that we're prone to hate them. We don't know a lot about the brothers, but we know they hate Joseph. Verse 4, they hate him. Verse 5, they hate him. Verse 8, they hate him even more. Verse 11, they're jealous of him. Verse 20, they're going to kill him. Why do they hate him so much? A mixture of reasons. Not the least of which I think is uh, Joseph is insufferable. He wasn't doing himself any favors. Verse 8 suggests that. They hated him because of his dreams and because of his words. Now whether the words were the original bad report that he brought or the recounting of the dreams. Either way, he wasn't helping his cause. But that's not the heart of the matter, is it? What's the heart of the matter? Why did they really hate him? Verse 11. They were jealous of him. They hate him because he received something they didn't. They cannot stand the thought 
that another might have something that they want. We instinctively can't stand when others get the things that we want. So what do we do? Verse 20, let's kill him. Throw him in the pit and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. The thought of Joseph over them was so intolerable. Even though he was the father's choice. Even though he was God's choice. That they were willing to murder to keep it from coming to pass. This is the covenant family. There is a heart of darkness on display that is unsettling. They have become Cain. A man who evokes jealousy, characterized by murder and hatred. They've set themselves against the Father. They've set themselves against God, willing the death of the beloved Son. But two figures emerge, don't they? That hopefully portend better things to come. Judah and Reuben, both of them make an attempt to save Joseph in their various ways. But what motivates them? Why are they acting in this way? I would suggest that they evidenced the same self-interest that was driving the hatred. Judah first. He comes right out and says it. What gain is there for us if we kill him? Why kill him when we can gain financially? Let's sell him. That way we don't have to deal about this mess of blood guilt. So in the mind, there would have been this idea that the blood actually issued its own cry to Yahweh for justice. Think about Abel. The blood of Abel crying out to Yahweh. Judah's like, let's forego all of that. There's no reason to even go down that road. But we still hate him. We got to get rid of him. So we might as well benefit while we do it. Human trafficking. A pleasant downgrade from murder. Yeah, if Judah is light, it's pretty dim light. What about Reuben? Reuben's a fascinating character in the book of Genesis. Much more could be said about Reuben, but I'll limit myself to this. Notice what he says in verse 30. Seems to evidence the same self-interest. The boy is gone, and as for me, what shall I do? Well, that's an odd thing to say. <laughs> what about me? What, what, what am I going to do? In their own ways, Judah and Reuben act driven by the same self-interest that drove the brothers initially to move towards murder. Notice that neither Judah or Reuben say anything as the deception unfolds. They're willing to stand by silently as they watch their father descend into the near madness of grief, raising further suspicion over their true motives. There's a darkness at the heart of the covenant family. They're less of a family, aren't they? More of a random amalgam of selfish individuals looking out for themselves. Unless we think we've evolved somehow, James writes to us, the church, what causes quarrels among you? What causes fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's to the church. Our sin incites us to despise the favor poured upon others, hating both the gift and the recipient. That hate is the same murderous hate of the brothers. How does this happen among the people of God? Imagine you arrive home and you give all of your children gifts. And upon the youngest, you give gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. 
If your family is anything like mine was growing up, there would be a brawl. And forgotten in the fray would be the original gifts that everyone had. Contentment deteriorates into discontent as we forget our own portions and fix our eyes only upon each other's. Isn't that how discontent brews among us? We have little tolerance of the blessing of others when they're withheld from us. We're prone to diminish and to tarnish their gifts in in hopes of somehow validating ourselves. We view each other as rivals, throwing each other into proverbial pits to level what we perceived to be previously unlevel. She really doesn't sing all that well, does she? I sing just as nice. That organization for that trip was incompetent. I'm sure I could have done better. He doesn't really preach all that well. Watch me take my turn at it. She's not that smart. He's not that pretty. He's not that competent. The tendency to do all that we do and to have all that we have with the constant eye to the doings and the havings of others. All of this raises a third question, doesn't it? It's a rather desperate question at this point. Is there any hope? How do we escape this vicious cycle of rivalry, jealousy, hatred, and abuse? Things were not off to a great start in the covenant family. Joseph, Jacob's choice for king, God's choice for king, had the early makings of an obtuse tyrant. The brothers, unwilling to trust either the Father or God, decided to take matters into their own hands and to kill the one who had been chosen. These are the generations of Jacob. These are the ones God intended to use for the blessing of his entire creation. No, no, things were not off to a great start. So why doesn't he just let them destroy each other? Or why doesn't God, maybe less messy, just let the coming famine wipe them all out? Because he had given a promise to Abraham. He had given a promise to this family that they would be the means of blessing, that they would be a great nation, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And the promise was never given because they were worthy of it. The promise was given with the divine knowledge of just how unworthy they are. Just how unworthy we are. It's God's faithfulness alone that is the bedrock of our confidence. His unwavering commitment to bring about a life-giving purpose which we do not deserve. It's the great faithfulness. It's God's great faithfulness which leads him to superintend the entirety of this sinful matrix of circumstance and action to accomplish their physical salvation. Remarkably, it's their sin that puts Joseph on the road to ruler of Egypt, which would accomplish not just their salvation, but the salvation of all the nations. Wow! That's a mystery, isn't it? Recall their declaration. Let's kill him and we'll see what becomes of his dream. 
They act to keep the dream from coming about and their actions bring the dream about. It's remarkable. The signs of God's providence are everywhere evident in the narrative. Did you notice the man who found Joseph wandering in the field? Man, that's uncanny that that guy had the exact information Joseph needed to find his brothers, that he knew that they had relocated from Shechem to Dothan. If you know a little bit about Israelite geography, you know that Shechem is pretty well off any major trade route, but Dothan, well, Dothan's right on the major trade route leading from Israel to Egypt. That's uncanny that they would relocate right next to that. And the fact that at the exact moment that they were deciding what to do with Joseph, Ishmaelite traders passed by, raising the question, was it really Judah's idea to downgrade to human trafficking? Or was he caught up in something much bigger than even he understood? It's remarkable. God superintending this entire matrix of sin and circumstance to put his servant in the exact place necessary to work a salvation for many. If that's not remarkable enough, he also governs their sin and circumstances to change his people for the better. Which is to say God begins to transform their hearts in the process. There's a hint at the beginning of this whole episode as to what kind of king Joseph would eventually become. What do we know about Joseph from the very get-go? He's a shepherd and a servant to Bilhah and Zilpah, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the lowest wives. He's a servant to the lowest wives and a shepherd. What is a shepherd? What is a shepherd? Is not a shepherd one whose exclusive function is for the preservation of others? This was to characterize God's leader. One who was willing to lay down his life that others might live. One who was willing to use his position of favors so that others might thrive. We see in all of this a remarkable orchestration of God's life-giving providence. We may say well and good. God certainly was impressive in that episode, but he doesn't act like that anymore. That's not how God attends our sins anymore. Now, sins are just left to run amok and do all the harm that we desire. What did we confess this morning? Westminster Confession of Faith 5.4 The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, infinite goodness of God manifests itself in his providence extending even to the first fall and all other sins of both angels and men. And this not by bare permission alone but by permission joined with a powerful limiting, ordering, and governing of those sins to accomplish his holy purposes. And yet, this notwithstanding, the sin comes from the creature alone because God neither is nor can be the author or the approver of sin. Or, to state it a little shorter, we can take the words straight from Joseph's mouth in Genesis 50 as he comes to the end of his story. What you meant for evil against me, he says to the brothers, you meant it for evil against me. God meant it for good 
Only scripture can manage such complexities with a deftness and balance like that. You meant evil. It can be called nothing else. It's reprehensible, you're responsible, and yet neither the sinner nor the sinned against are left in a position of utter despair. Why? Because of the, will, the bewildering power, wisdom, and goodness of Yahweh. A power and wisdom that's able even to sublimate evil into good. Death into life and a goodness which leads him to do it. There's remarkable comfort there if we can stomach it, if we can get our minds around it. Our sin does not take God off guard. We feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? It can feel like that. I'm sure Joseph felt like that as he was in this pit watching his brothers enjoy a meal. There's no way this can be under God's sovereignty. There's no way. Our sin does not take God off guard. It grieves him. Our sin grieves him. He is not the approver of sin. It causes real harm to ourselves and others. There's no way to read Joseph's narrative and not come away with that. But it does not and it cannot ultimately thwart his life-giving purposes. The brothers ate the bread that their sin provided, casting themselves at the feet of the favored one they sought to remove. But this only after years and years of ache and grief. Joseph finally understood that his position of favor was to be used for the preservation of others and the glory of God, a posture of humility that took years and years of ache and grief to fashion. So who's really favored? Joseph? The brothers? If God gives you a gift for the blessing of others, if another is blessed by a gift God gives you, upon whom does God really pour the favor? Ultimately, Joseph pales in comparison to the truly favored one, Jesus Christ the beloved Son of God, favored above all others. God's choice for king, whom he sent to his brothers, who hated him, not for any ambiguity of character in our Lord, but because darkness hates the light, because death hates life, because imposter kings hate the true king. And this hatred drove them to kill him in an attempt to thwart God's choice for king. And yet, their very attempt to stop God's choice for king established God's choice as king, placing him on a throne the likes of, with, the likes of which no one had a mind to imagine. Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension led to his coronation at the right hand of the Father where he is now providing himself as spiritual food in a world marred by famine, not just to Israel, but to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is our delight now. We have the privilege of delighting, casting our feet at God's, at the feet of God's unparalleled favored one, delighting in him, growing in our confidence, that God gives all of his gifts 
according to His perfect wisdom, for His glory, and for the good of His people. And in this we're being transformed from a selfish cluster of individuals vying for our own self-interest to a household of faith marked by the selflessness of Jesus Christ, our head. We're being freed, freed from selfishly parading our gifts around for our own glory. We're being freed from viewing one another as rivals. We're being freed slowly, painfully, sometimes begrudgingly, unto considering another's well-being before our own, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Fathers, imagine you come home, you give all of your children gifts, and then you turn to your wife, and you give her gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. And to the gentle protestations of your little ones, you confirm what they suspect, that indeed, I do favor her over you. In fact, there's no one on earth I cherish more. But I promise you, my beloved little ones, it's not to your harm, but for your benefit. In a like way, God has favored Christ above all else, not to our harm, but for the unimaginable blessing of billions because in the Son we have all received an inheritance which can satisfy in the face of every earthly disparity to the praise of God's glorious grace. Join me in prayer. Father, your ways are certainly above our ways. Your wisdom is above our wisdom. Father, we marvel at the way that you have orchestrated sin and circumstances to bring about your life-giving will. We marvel that you, a holy and righteous God, bear with us in all of our failures. We delight, Lord, that our confidence is in your faithfulness and not ours. We delight that you have set forth Christ because of your great love and in him we can be confident that you will withhold from us nothing. We thank you, Father, for your word and the testimony it bears to these things. Strengthen our faith as we glimpse your workings in these. We ask this in Christ. Amen.